Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, everyone. This is Johnny, and welcome to episode 25 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I am Johnny FD, and I'm here with my buddy, Sam Marks. How are you doing? Hey, yeah, I'm good. 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 Good to hear from you again, Johnny. Where are you at now and uh, where are you coming from? So I have been in Hawaii for the last week and I am in LA for just one day. I'm actually sitting in front of a Pete's Coffee uh, in, in LA in front of my my favorite neighborhood. It's called Larchmont Village. Uh, it's mm-hmm. an amazing place. If you guys ever go to, to LA, this is kind of like the spot to, to hang out. Is it near the coast or is it inland? It's like inland. Downtown? It's kind of like near the... Um, I, I would so it's kind of like near Melrose if, if you ever mm-hmm. hang out there. So Johnny, last week we had on Sam the financial Samurai, and he was talking about how amazing Hawaii was, and you were just out in Hawaii. So what's your take? Hawaii is amazing. I would say it's just as good as Thailand. Uh, it's beautiful. It's it has a lot of perks of being in like the mainland U.S. You know, like and being in you know California, mm-hmm. as in you can you can get whatever you want. There's you know. Walmart, whatever. So I guess if you want to yeah. buy something, it's pretty easy. And even companies will actually, sh- like a lot of companies will ship there, like Amazon will ship there. Uh, I had to get nice. a pair of sandals overnighted there because I left them in Vegas. And it was crazy. The, I got a package. I went to the front desk. I'm like, you know, do you have an overnight FedEx package for me? It's really important. And they opened it up and it's a pair of Luna sandals. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get all the good stuff of the USA, but you still get the island life and tropical feeling of, of uh, Southeast Asia. So I guess exactly. it's the best of both worlds in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, the, the only problem with it is it's literally three or four times the price of being in Thailand. So there's the almost... The price yeah. you pay to import every single thing into the into the area. Exactly. So where are you now, actually? I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. I just came from South Carolina and um, going to be in Florida and the Caribbean for the next couple of months, I think. I'm going to do a little bit of sailing and uh, it's good to be back at the stateside for a little bit. You know, it's been about a year and appreciate the banter and the and the camaraderie and and seeing old friends. And, you know, the political stuff is pretty crazy, I got to say, but it definitely keeps things interesting as well. Yeah, definitely. So it's been nice being back. If anything, just to kind of remind me of what normal life is, what I'm kind of missing out on, uh, as well as what I'm not missing out on. So it's kind of a good to weigh the pros and balances. Got it. So I am actually really excited for this week's guest because Paul Merriman is 73, I believe, and he's mm-hmm. retired and he really just likes sharing, you know, his, his journey on how to be able to retire wealthy you know, how to be able to retire smart. And I think it's so needed because most people have no idea what they're doing. Uh, it's funny. Um, I just went to the Chase Bank this morning to get my, to get a cashier's check to, for, for my Thai visa. And mm. the guy looked at my account and he's like, oh, you qualified for our private banker pro- program. Cause I think I had like had, had over a hundred grand, uh, in cash in the account. And it was, I was kind of laughing because, I had met a girl who works as a private banker for Wells Fargo mm-hmm. uh, at a bar, just uh, at the hotel bar, and she had no idea what she was talking about, you know, financially. Because I was so interested, I was like, "Oh, awesome! You know, this is you know, I I love talking about finance and investing. You know, what would you guys recommend to someone that had a hundred grand in their bank account?" And she had no idea what she was talking about. And I and I really believe that most people, most people that work at these, you know, and most banks. Wells Fargo, Chase, Bank of America, you know, even people 
in the the kind of higher tier levels, like the private banking, they 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 like they aren't even educated in like even if they just listened to ten episodes of this podcast or read any any of the mm-hmm. books that people have talked about, they would be way ahead than they are now. Yeah, and that's just the thing. The, the more people we talk to, the more people we interview, the more pe- the more feedback we get from guests and and uh, in our and of course our audience and listeners and and more discussions we have in the Boss Lounge, the more we realize that the people that we've talked to in the past that have tried to give us financial advice generally don't know what they're talking about. And this goes into a lot of the people I've dealt with on a financial level and investing. So it's, it's very, it's very eye opening. And I think one of the great things that Paul Merriman brings to the show is we haven't had someone on the show yet that has had the wealth of experience that Paul has, that's been around, that's got 50 plus years of investing and advising clients on the show. So it's going to be great to tap into that that wealth of knowledge and all the perspective he's had. Think of all the th- crazy events that he's lived through uh, and and been investing through. And to be able to you know hear from somebody that's weathered that many storms and come out ahead, that's the type of experience that we need to to blend with all of the different uh, innovators and and entrepreneurs and and young hungry guys that we're talking to on the show all the time. To be able to mix that with the experience that Paul has, um, and Paul's one of the leading the leading authorities uh, internationally in mutual funds and, and asset allocation. So I'm really excited to talk to him as well. Yeah. So I, I can't wait for him to be on the show. Uh, definitely excited to, to listen to this episode myself. So without further ado, here is Paul Merriman. Guys, welcome back to Invest Like a Boss. Today I have with me Paul Merriman. And Paul, a very good welcome to you on the Pacific Coast. Uh, good morning, Sam. Great to be with you and with your listeners. And I love that you're an early riser. I believe it's 7 a.m. on the Pacific time right now. Yes, and I, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on the day that you talk to my wife, uh, I'm I'm up and at them at somewhere between 4 and 5 each morning. Uh, there's so much work to be done. So, <laughs> oh, the life of a retired man. Right, right. And have you always been an early riser, Paul, or is that just more of a, a retirement uh, habit? You know, my mother was an early riser. Uh, she was a nurse, and uh, she would get up at five in the morning. Uh, and uh, I seemed to pick up that genetic code and, and actually think the early morning hours are the the best. The, my problem is I also like the late hours, so that's <laughs> always been a squeeze for me. <laughs> Makes sense, yeah. I'm in South Carolina now, and I'm not normally an, an early riser, but I'm at this little lake retreat, and the mornings are so incredible mm. that if I'm in bed past 7 o'clock, I've, I feel like I've missed the day. So I'm, I don't think it'll stick once I get back to Florida, but for now, it's been a, it's been a nice little change. And, and i got to say, now that you, that you mentioned that, Sam, that uh, the ability to get up in the morning and look out, I happen to live on Bainbridge Island uh, mm-hmm. part of the year out here in the state of Washington, and uh, you get up and you look out on the water, and right now we have snow in the mountains already, uh, so exciting, and um, this is a part, I think, of... Uh, the success of a long life of saving and, <laughs> and what we call delayed gratification to be able to finally have this peace that you that that you get when you live in a beautiful place and and uh, it, it makes a big difference that's really good to hear good for you and man we're so excited to have you on the show because I don't think we've had a guest yet that has as much experience as you do in finance as in, in investing 
So we're thrilled to be able to tap into all that knowledge. But first, I was hoping if you could just tell us a little bit about how retirement life is, what are you up to, where are you living around the year? You mentioned Washington, and I think you also have some some holiday home in Mexico. Yes, we do. And, uh, you know, I think early risers have a tendency to be workaholics. I have no idea if that is actually proven, but mm-hmm. anecdotally, then that's, that's where I am. I've always been a hardworking guy. And when I retired, so-called retired in 2012, I did promise my wife I would never work for money again. <laughs> Unfortunately, she thought I said, uh, I will never work again. <laughs> so I'm working as hard today as I was working when I was in the business. Uh, I spent 30 years as an investment advisor from age 40 on, and and uh, uh, I worked long hours then, and here I am now completely devoted. And this is makes this interview so exciting to me. I am devoted to helping investors do better with their money and I'm talking about not just for the next year, but for the rest of their life. And hopefully, if I do my work, and I think you're doing yours, we're going to teach them how to invest so that when they, when they retire, they'll have more to live on and more to leave to others, which includes the education they leave to others. So I do that here, but when I go to Mexico, I've got I've got the telephone, I've got my computer, and I live in this, my wife and I live in a place called San Miguel de Allende, which is not on the beach, but it's 6,200 feet, kind of right in the center of Mexico. And uh, I, I hope, I hope that if any of your listeners ever come to San Miguel, that they'll not be, uh, uh, don't be bashful, email me, paul at paulmerriman.com, and I'll try to tell you some of the good places to go. I like it. I like it. So where, how did you end up there in Mexico, and, and how long have you been going down to that area? Well, we've had a home there for 10 years or a little longer, and, and we actually did one of these things. My daughter said, Dad, you ought to take a vacation, and you ought to get out of the country, so, you know, totally change your environment. And uh, she recommended I go take a look at San Miguel, and my wife and I, now, I, I, I chide investors who make unwise, quick decisions that aren't well considered in terms of the risk and the potential return. <laughs> the first week we were there, we bought a house. <laughs> and that's not the way I've lived my life at all. I'm very cautious. I'm very conservative. And, uh, and we did that, and it is one of the most amazing places on earth for certainly for old people and I'm 73 now I mean there there's why I know so much I've been around so long but 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 I just think that is a wonderful part of the world and such a change uh, from being in the United States it's a whole different culture yeah so I'm going down to Playa del Carmen in for the whole month of December because I've always wanted to live at least you know for a short duration in Mexico longer than just like a week holiday but I'm really looking forward to it because I love Mexican food. I love the sun. I love the contrast between the the white sand and the and the blue sky. So, um, and December is such an amazing time down the, there. And yep. I know, of course, in Seattle you have a, a nice white Christmas. I'm sure. Um, uh, don't <laughs> count on it. Uh, we might have a wet one, but not a white one. <laughs> That's true. So, what what months are you typically down in Mexico? 
Well, it can vary. Uh, January is uh, will be down there. We just got back from being down there. Uh, we're so involved on Bainbridge Island with uh, nonprofits uh, uh, and a lot of teaching. Um, I have a university course up at uh, Bellingham uh, at Western uh, Western University that we can only spend two or three months a year down in Mexico. But uh, honest to God, we've thought about dying there. Uh, it's an interesting decision. See, at your age, you're not thinking about dying. At my age, it's a big deal. And so uh, there are some big, huge, and I'm not talking tax advantages. I'm talking life advantages of being somewhere where people take care of you and like doing it rather than feel like it's some sort of a of a of a compromise you're 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 just uh, a nurse you're just a whatever it would be that I'll need when I'm down right, there right. but but uh, I'll be down there more than 2 or 3 months by the time I'm 85 beautiful wow really nice so I will. I look forward to going and checking it out. And for anyone out there that hasn't been to Mexico, get down there and, and enjoy the Coronas. And I think Corona is actually a Mexican beer. Do you know that? that well, if that's uh, true. Yeah, yeah. I think that's absolutely. I'm now. You know, they probably license at other places in the world, but th- theoretically, that's that's right. And and I got to tell you, because people people, and I know we're here to talk about money, but I and investing, but uh, this whole idea that Mexico is a scary place to go. Yes, even in San Miguel, there have been cartel of drug people killing drug people. That happens, I think, all over the world or many parts of the world. But it's like every everywhere else. You, you, you don't go into parts of a big city that you know that there are challenges with, with safety. But it, when you're in the normal part of a San Miguel or places that you're going to go, uh, it's, it's, it's not scary. It, in fact, we even walk at night. So it's, um, uh, it, it, it's a lot different than people picture it. I like it. Yeah, I always say it, tell people that the scariest places I've ever been in the entire world are in big cities in the USA. So you can get in, you can get yourself in trouble anywhere you go, but, but that's right. Keep your nose out of it, and you're okay. So just for the guests, Paul and I have decided for the show that we're going to take one of his books, the one the 101 Investment Decisions Guaranteed to Change Your Financial Future. And we're going to break it down into the top 12 that Paul thinks are the most important and most relevant for the audience. And I think just before we get into that, Paul, if, just for the, the guests that, don't, that are not familiar with your background, if you could give us just an idea of how you got into finance, how you kind of grew in it in the, in the path of becoming such a highly respected authority in the field. Well, uh, you know, being around a long time certainly helps just because you learn a lot. But I came out of uh, university, uh, Western Washington University, and uh, and I went to work for a, a brokerage firm. And I did that for a little over two years. I can tell you that uh, it's a great business to be in in terms of making money. But the conflicts of interest are just huge, and you and even when you're a kid and excited about making a lot of money, you see it quickly, and some people overlook it, and some people will work through it. I got out of it, and I did other things uh, as as I did some venture capital work. I started uh, a small company that grew in a totally unrelated uh, industry. I I took over a small public company in a totally 
another unrelated industry. And at 40, I retired. And I retired to do something, promising myself I will not be a workaholic again. And so I started this teeny tiny little investment advisory firm. I would help somebody who had $2,000. I didn't care because this was going to be fun, and I was only going to take 200 clients, and I didn't care how big they were because I didn't need the money to, 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 to pay the bills. And then in 30 years, I have a company that's at $1.6 billion under management, and, uh, and I sold out and I retired, started a, a financial education foundation with a major part of the money that I got from the sale of my business. And I think what's most important about the whole career of investing is, first of all, trying to figure out the important and the right things to do about investing because the sooner you do it right, the more likely you are to have what you really wanted to have when you're old like I am. And that's why your show is so important because you're talking in large part to younger people. You are an absolute disaster to the industry, Sam, because Wall Street can't like what you're doing because you're teaching people how to invest without having to pay the high price of Wall Street. When I started my business back in, in 1983, I started teaching, like you're teaching, I started teaching people how to invest on their own. I didn't care whether or not you became a client. I cared that you did the right things with your money. But I also know this, human nature, and you know it too, that people can want to lose weight, but mm -hmm. it isn't that easy to actually mm -hmm. do it because when it comes to sex, food, and money, it's a, not an intellectual decision. It's an emotional decision. <laughs> I just had to and, run through my brain on all three of those points, and I, I agree with you. <laughs> so, so this is... Uh, this is, I'm not calling it God's work. I'm not calling it that at all, but I can tell you that the work that you're doing and that I'm doing are about making families financially right for not one generation, but for many. I love it. Paul, thanks for that. It's great background and a great build up to where we're going to go with this episode. And that is straight into the 12 points that we've identified, or actually rather you've identified out of your book and that we're thrilled to be able to go over with you. And for all the listeners out there, we'll definitely leave uh, notes and references to all of Paul's works, including this book. And I think this is a good point to just dive into the first of the 12 points. Uh, so Paul, I think if you'll take the first one and then sure. I'll read the second sure. one and we'll just, we'll go down the list and have a discussion on each point. That's, that's great. I mean, the first one is, is obvious but not necessarily one that people do the right thing about, and that is the decision of save versus spend. Uh, and, and by the way, those 101 decisions I'm talking about and are in that free ebook. Um, these are obvious forks in the road that people do either by design or by default. And here's why I think it's important this save versus spend decision needs to be by design. Warren Buffett has a, has a quote, and I don't remember the, the exact wording of it, but it's basically this. You don't, you don't save what's left over after spending. 
You spend what's left over after saving. I like it. And if you want to be successful for the long term, you got to save. And the earlier you save, we all know this, the better off you are. I mean, five years can make the difference between being able to retire at 60 or 65 because you started at 20 instead of 25 or 25 instead of 30. So that first decision point is that commitment to save. Of course, investing is a whole new challenge, but saving is absolutely basic. And and I hope for everybody out there that's facing that decision that it will be a joint decision with you and your partner. So, Paul, do you see in, imagine when you were growing up and first started savings, you had much different interest rates on your bank savings than are offered today. Is that fair to assume? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, you know, and, and it's interesting because in, in a sense, that does take us uh, to number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in those days, I actually remember one time when I got 16% on a five-year CD. Oh, my gosh. 16%. Oh, my gosh. And, um, and, and you could ask, well, why didn't you put all your money there? And it's because I thought interest rates were going higher. Wow. And, of course, I was dead wrong, as, we, as most of us are when we make these kind of market timing decisions. Mm-hmm. But it is an interesting fork in the road, and that is the decision of whether to put your money in the stock market for the long term or the bond market, because that's mm-hmm. what you're talking about, bonds, CDs, whatever it might be. And there's a 80 to 100 year, actually over 100 year uh, history of stocks paying about uh, twice as much. And by the way, you start compounding that mm-hmm. over a lifetime. And you're talking about if you make the right decision of stocks over bonds for the long term, you'll have probably five to 10 times as much money from that part of your portfolio than the people who choose to safely invest. And that's what I worry about millennials. Yeah. Good savers, but bad investors. Yeah, it's interesting with the millennials because I feel like it would actually be, I don't, I don't know if I'm a millennial. Maybe I'm just at the, at, just at the, the, the one side of it. But I know when I was growing up and I was you know, 10, 12 years old, I would get monthly allowance from my parents of like $5. And I would almost always save that but because it was interesting. I had a Fidelity savings account. I don't know what the interest rates were. Maybe they were 4% or something, but mm-hmm. it was nice to see every quarter I would get a statement. And even as you know, 11, 12 years old, I could appreciate it. I was making you know a couple dollars in interest and that helped kind of invigorate my savings engine because you know back then that was a lot of money to me that was a new lego set or something that i was getting just for putting (laughs) money in the bank and now you know people that are same age now or let's just even say they're they're 20 years old now and they're they're starting to save some money they're not getting anything you know they're not even getting a free cup of coffee out of out of their savings (laughs) from any big bank in the u.s right so it takes a lot more discipline or a lot more know-how to to find some type of return. Otherwise, you're just saving for saving's sake and, and not losing, not spending money, but you're, you're just saving it. Well, if you focus on not losing, it, it means you're going to go a route that historically has not paid people the premium necessary for your money to grow like it has to grow. I mean, the thing I worry about for people like you, Sam, and a lot of your listeners, is all of the kinds of things that were built into this society to kind of protect us from our uh, own kind of uh, bad mistakes. 
uh, th- th- those are going away, mm-hmm. and we're on our own. And it's not just the the women that you can say you're on your own, baby, but it's men too who are on our own to make sure that we do the right thing with our money for the long term. And all of the, there's a book I just love to recommend entitled. Uh, your Money and Your Brain by Jason Zweig. I hope you have him on your show sometime. He is terrific. But it's about the emotional side of, uh, of money. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, we are so afraid of losing. We are so afraid of losing that we'll put our money somewhere where inflation is almost guaranteed to eat up almost all of the return that you make. That's huge to somebody in their 20s or 30s. Yeah, we we have to do an episode on inflation because it's something I think about a lot and I don't know enough about it. And I know we could go into a lot of detail on that on this episode, but it's it's kind of scary today when you get. Yeah, you get zero basically in a in a bank deposit uh, and inflation's, you know, inflation's moderate right or or low to moderate right now. But it could come Mm -hmm. roaring back. And if you have, you know, if you have CDs and stuff, they're going to get wiped away. But anyways, um, Inflation, the four-letter word. Uh, so number two was stocks versus bonds. And you already kind of touched on that, but I just want to make sure that yep. we, we nail that point uh, home for the audience. So let's just say you're, you know, you're in your 20s or 30s. You're just starting to save. You're not sure what the, you know, the future is going to be. Um, where, like, where's your advice for, for younger people that are starting, you know, starting savings and investing in stocks and bonds? Well, if this is long-term money we're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, we know that the stock market has compounded at about a 10% rate of return mm-hmm. over the last almost 90 years. That includes a depression, that includes world wars, that includes energy crises and political crises and all the bad stuff that happened. And we still limped through and made about a 10% compound rate of return. And I focus a lot of my work in the area where people got 12 to 12 plus percent over that same mm-hmm. period of time. I, I want young people to understand there are ways to do better without taking a lot more risk. But the bottom line is that there's a premium for taking that risk. But gosh, what is that risk? Well, the risk of stocks is if you do it right, you still lose 50% on your investment. But young people should enjoy the opportunity to buy those stocks at lower prices. Never one at a time, never one at a time, but as a group and and take advantage of those lower markets. So the very thing that scares those of us who are old and on the downside of our life, uh, then that is the market going down, is a celebration for young people. Don't be afraid of loss. As long as the, as the investment is for 20, 30, 40 years from now, because all of the evidence is over 40 years, the range of the returns you're going to get are somewhere between 8 and 12. Mm-hmm. If you look the worst, the worst 40-year period in the stock market, it was over 8%. So huge decision stocks versus bonds and would you and would you say paul that it's a celebration when it goes down because it's an opportunity to buy more or just because that's just the natural cycles of of stock markets and it's it's good to weather a couple storms you know it's both mm-hmm. because we need to understand that that's part of the process that there are good times and there are bad times 
and, and this is the bet we're making, if you want to call it a bet, that capitalism survives and grows and continues to do well for investors, for corporations, for individuals, uh, having jobs, etc. And, and, and I know there are a lot of people who do not look positively at the future. I, I can understand that. But it never looked good. It never, ever looked good. There was always a reason to be afraid. Right. And so it's a huge fork in the road for people. And old people like me oftentimes are teaching young people about how to invest. And we, we bemoan when the market goes down. And so young people pick up that fear that we have in the market going down, but that's the natural, it appears to be the natural cycle of things, the ups and downs, but that, that movement historically has been up. I like it. And it's, it's scary too, you know, the, with the internet and the media and everything, whenever the market's down, it's like you said, the, it's this major crisis, right? The market's down 5%. You turn on the TV, it's all these red flashing signs. People are screaming, what's going on? So it's, it's a little of that built into, um, you know, if we would just pay attention to the fundamentals and the cycles of, of the stock market and understand these things that you're saying, instead of turning on the news and listening to uh, Jim Cramer and everyone screaming, it's, it's a lot more but, easy but to digest, remember. right? Yes, Sam, but to remember, there is always list A, the good news. Mm -hmm. There is always list B, the bad news. Mm -hmm. Always. Yeah. And so there'll always be a reason to be bearish and always be a reason to be bullish. I like and it. the part that's confusing to people and why investing is hard is because bad news is actually good. Because when things are bad, that's more than likely when you're getting a, a good deal. You know, you're the Warren Buffett buying companies at much lower prices, mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel good because everybody's so scared. Right. Right. You are. All right. Well, that takes us into number three, which is one stock versus many stocks. Yeah. Big decision. Easy for young people to think they're going to find that one company that's going to take them from from a, like winning the lottery, looking mm -hmm. for that one great company. Here's what the academics tell us. The academics tell us the expected rate of return of any individual stock is the same as all stocks in that asset class, in that group growth stocks or small stocks or, or whatever that kind of specific index might be. Now, if that's true, then what risk do we take with one company? Oh, Enron, now I remember. Or Eastern Airlines, yes, companies that didn't survive. In our, up here in the Seattle area, Washington Mutual, such a fine company, didn't survive. And it's risky, there's high risk, but should you expect to get a higher return for owning one company? And the answer is, you may think you're going to get a higher return, but there's absolutely no evidence to indicate that because you like a company that it's going to do better than other companies. And I've never met an investor who made an investment in an individual company that they didn't believe, they thought this through, they listened to the right people, and they made a great decision. The decision is to own equities and own many, and I'm, I'm talking massive diversification because the expected rate of return is the same. 
And we should never remember, forget, I'm sorry, this rule. Never take a risk for which you do not expect a premium. So if I can't expect a premium for owning one stock, then if I'm going to get the same return with a thousand, why take the risk of going out of business and losing everything? Got Doesn't it. make any sense. Got it. So, so on that, I just want to re- rephrase what you what you mentioned about one stock. The expected rate of return of one stock is the same as a basket, a thousand, a, a thousand in that same class. So, if it's technology, yes. Okay. So, so, and that's because you're basically you're. You're gonna, if you pick a stock, right? Let's just say you close your eyes, you pick a stock in technology. There's as good of a chance of that stock going up and beating that basket of technology stocks and as good of a chance of it going below and underperforming. Is that the general? That is right. But you know something? At the moment, in, in terms of what's in the news today, it is almost impossible to see that. In the late 90s, or actually early 2000s, Microsoft made many billionaires here and certainly multimillionaires here in the Northwest, not because they knew anything about Microsoft, because they were literally lived here in the Northwest. So it was something you should own because you lived where they were. You are still not today, even with the price. And I'm not talking about because of any, any splits. This is not about splits. From 2000 to 2016, the price is still lower than it was in 2000. I would have been strung up by my toes had I told people in the Northwest, you idiots, you should sell your Microsoft. By the way, I didn't know to tell them that. But if I had, I would have been laughed at. Right, right. So, Paul, have you ever in your career or at what point in your career have you ever bought individual stocks for your for your personal investments or for people that you've advised for? Yes. Yes, I was a stockbroker mm-hmm. <laughs> for two, till over two mm-hmm. years. That's what you did. And every stock has a story. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that a company is on the ropes, well, there's a story right there. You're getting this thing cheap. It's going to get turned around. Do you know the guy that just went in there as the new president and, 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 and chairman of the board? That guy is so smart. Or that guy, they're going to turn it around. <laughs> so even a bad story could be made good if you tell it right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, and people buy stories by this, yeah, by the way. Yeah, that's. Sam. I mean, I own. So I don't own too many individual stocks, but I own Tesla, and I'm basically buying the story. Right? I'm a big fan of Elon Musk. I yeah. think you know, I think he's a superstar. Yeah. So it's more. It's not necessarily that I bought it because I think I'm going to make money off it. I bought it to be kind of part of the story. Um, as long, I guess. It, and it, I it, think that. Yeah. I okay. I got to stop because I'm. But I don't want other people to invest like that. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> right. Uh, good for you. But I don't want, I want people to invest from day one as if they are a multi-millionaire. And multi-millionaires, yeah, yeah some of them do buy individual mm-hmm. stocks, but they probably own a hundred right. of them. And, and so, uh, and by the way, my, my home run was I invested in 1983 $15,000 to start my company. I never invested any more than $15,000. Sweat equity, hundreds of thousands, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although I wasn't really worth 100000 but I but I didn't get paid because I put that all back into the company. Mm-hmm. And so that $15,000 turned out to grow at over 30% a year over 30 years. Now that 
was a fine uh, a fine re- uh, return, but but it was a, a, a very high risk investment. Nobody knew me as an investment advisor, so I. And of course, this is where I think people can buy one stock when you invest in yourself. If you have a you see a future for helping people in some way that can, you can make a living doing it, I think that may be one of the greatest, other than an education, investment that we can make. Yeah, we talk about that stuff a lot on, and Johnny and I are, of course, huge advocates of in, investing in yourself first, um, especially, especially at younger ages when you have so many skills that you need to develop over the, the course of a, a career and a lifetime. So, And yet I think one of the worst gurus out there is uh, Kiyosaki, mm-hmm. uh, Rich Dad, yeah. Poor Dad. I just think most of his message is wrong, but that doesn't mean that part of it's not right, but most of it's right. wrong. Yeah, I think so. There's, uh, I'm sure you've, you may have heard of or read of the book uh, Money Master of the Game by Tony Robbins. And there's, yes, a, there's a, lot of, a lot of financial professionals that, don't, that do not like his message in that book. And I'm, I'd like to get your opinion on it as well. But I think one thing that, I, that from, a, from a younger person viewpoint, I know I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was probably 19 and Money Master of the Game just a few years ago. Uh, and for people that don't have that much experience in, in money matters, I think the most important thing about those books, irregardless of a lot of the, the detailed messaging in it, is that it just helps you to think a little bit differently about money and investing. Uh, even if you don't follow the entire thing, it helps you get change your view of, of what you should be doing in terms of spending versus saving. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. Uh even Susie Orman does some good work in terms of credit and whatnot, but, but we have to be careful not to take her investment advice. Right. <laughs> and I'm not putting her down. That's not her expertise. Mm-hmm. She's really good at credit and, and money decisions that people make in terms of their day-to-day lives. But we need to find, and this is one of the 101 choices, we too need to find the source of information on how to invest that is the very best Tony Robbins will, I think, for another day, because it could make the whole show all to itself, mm-hmm. I think, Sam. <laughs> but Tony Robbins gets part of it right very mm-hmm. well. But, and, and Tony, but Tony also interviewed like the top, you know, some of the top guys in finance. So he's just kind of rephrasing and reiterating messages from them. Yeah, but what if, here's an interesting challenge, because mm-hmm. this is a fork in the road. Uh, there are people who build their reputation on predicting the future, mm-hmm. and they may have a very fine track record for 15, 20, 25 years, but you still have to make a decision as an investor. Am I going to invest based on somebody predicting the future or invest based on what happened in the past, like stocks over bonds, like one stock versus many? And there's a trap because it's very easy to think somebody who's made some great calls will, in fact, uh, like Ray Dalio, will, in fact, be able to continue making those calls. Same with Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, he's not a has-been. He's a great investor. But his track record for the last 15 years has been very mediocre. Hmm. And will probably never be like it was before, ever. Do you think some of that's like because of just the market trends, or do you think he might be getting complacent now that he's older and has achieved so much? 
Well, it's probably a whole bunch of factors. It's, it's, it's probably partly that he's got so much money to manage now, he can't do what he did. And there are some areas of our economy where he profited greatly, like in the area of reinsurance. Reinsurance, because there are a lot of people in it today, uh, reinsurance isn't nearly as profitable as it once was. And, and so there's, it's a long story. But, but, and people know, we know that what he did was he bought companies that were what we would today call value companies. We now know from the academic research that you go back 90 years and value companies have paid 5% more a year than growth companies. We know that. So today it's not a secret. And so probably the returns on value will not be as significant as they were in the past. And I think we're seeing that play out in a sense, with, with what Warren Buffett chooses. Very interesting, the Buffett himself. So number four, Paul, we got you pick or turn it over to experts. Yeah, and in a sense, you, you, you talked about picking Tesla a second ago, and, 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 and that's a big deal. That, that's a big deal because we can feel emotionally charged by being part of the process. No pun intended. Uh, a lot of people, <laughs> that's right, <laughs> right. Uh, so so here, here is what I think. I think we turn it over to professionals. And um, I, I'm a guy, I've, I'm at 73, the last thing I wanna do is spend my day uh, thinking about what stocks I should own or how are my stocks doing. Or, I mean, for some people it's a hobby and that's okay. That's a great hobby probably. But if I don't have any control over the outcome of all these investments, why would I want to waste any time worrying about that and, and, and tracking that, et cetera, looking for one, somebody to say something in the press that turns me on because it's something good about my company. So all of a sudden it becomes more fun. I think boring is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the more boring the investment process is, and this is hard to teach a young person, the more likely you are to succeed because it means you're looking at the numbers. And numbers don't tell the same kind of exciting story, particularly when the numbers represent a thousand companies or 10,000 companies, or in my own portfolio, 15,000 companies. Mm -hmm. So my view is don't pick them yourself. The odds are you'll make just as much money, probably more, and we can talk about why that happens, uh, if you just invest in a professionally managed portfolio. But even there, as you know, we have forks in the road. Right. So we have some listener questions on that, but I would, let's save those to the very end because I want to I give them to you all quickly in rapid fire. Okay. <laughs> right. So, okay. So good. number good. five is load funds or no load funds. The cost of a load fund is about 0.5 percent. You mentioned. Yeah. Well, the long term mm -hmm. cost is when you pay. Let's say you pay a a five percent uh, uh, commission, mm -hmm. a load uh, on an equity fund. Well, that means you have ninety five hundred dollars going in instead of ten thousand. So what's the cost? If equities compound at 10%, and some do better than that, but if equities compound at 10%, it means that you're giving up a half of 1% for the rest of your life. A half of 1%. I do a piece, and I hope that a lot of your listeners will read about the impact of an additional half of 1%, and believe it or not, 
eight versus eight and a half percent over a lifetime, putting away $5,000 a year for 40 years into an IRA or 401k, that half a 1% is almost a $2 million difference over your lifetime in what you leave to others and what you take out. So a half a 1%, giving that up in a commission to somebody where they're not likely to create a premium. Remember, don't ever take a risk for which there's not a premium. Well, there's no evidence that because a, a commission salesperson recommends a particular fund with a load in it that you're going to do any better. In fact, the proof, the evidence is just the opposite. You're going to do worse, and there's reasons for that. So uh, my, my view is don't ever pay a load because you're giving up a half a percent a year potentially equating to millions over a lifetime. So I have a couple questions on this. So load funds, I know when I first started investing, going back, you know, a couple of years before college with just, you know, a couple thousand dollars I'd saved up working at a golf course and stuff. The, mm -hmm. I, I think I'm, I'm not 100% positive, but I believe I was always investing in load mutual funds more because I was being, it's, it's an easy sell, right? It's someone saying, okay, here's one chart this fund's made 8%, blah, blah, blah. Here's another chart. Here's an average. It makes 6%. We're going to charge you 0.5% load. You know, you're still making an extra one and a half percent. Someone that, that is, that doesn't have a lot of experience. It's a pretty easy sell today. Are, are load mutual funds very common? Cause it, it seems like with Vanguard and a lot of these other, uh, low fee, uh, indexes, the, that loads, at least in, in some of the people I talk to, it's not really even an, on the option or on, on the table for for investment anymore. Well, I, I don't know if you've seen the article from the New York Times about what teachers are paying in commissions mm -hmm. to get not only just into loaded mutual funds, but loaded mutual funds that are called variable annuities, mm -hmm. and that's the only choice they have. That's the only choice they have, Sam. It, 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 it's, it's taking virtually half of their retirement. They don't even know it. The teachers don't even understand this. It drives me oh, nuts. Oh, because it's going, it's going through their 401k. Huh? In their 403 okay. is and what it's called. And they, they don't have options through that. No, the school district set it up, and this, this has gone on for decades. The insurance industry wraps them up, and, and, and this just kills mm. me. That load... One of the reasons they don't mind paying it is because I talked to a teacher who said this is the mm -hmm. case. The people at AXA, who, and, and they just happen to be the ones that he mentioned, they're selling load funds. They come around once a year at the end of the school year with an ice cream truck. Everybody gets a free ice cream come bar. On. And they come <laughs> into the... To the, to the teacher's lounge once a month, and they spread around some donuts, and, some, and the teachers don't understand it is costing them half of what they would be able to get out of their retirement if they didn't invest in that, but invested in low-cost, broadly diversified mutual funds that don't have a load and don't have high expenses. Maybe we should take ice cream to the same schools and, and tell them to listen to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. You know something? You will probably be as frustrated as I mm. was because that's one thing I did. I didn't take ice cream, but I went out. When I, when I started doing my work back in 1983, I thought, God, I know I can help the teachers. Mm -hmm. And the teachers love 
the person who comes around once a year and talks to yeah. them and and, and it, it's it's a process that by the way and there are educators yeah it would be awesome to have someone like you there on the spot when those people come around and are, are giving them the the little sales pitch to ask them the real questions and show show some real you know evidence to the teachers that they could they could be investing more wisely but i am there <laughs> i'm there through podcasts mm -hmm. i'm there through videos uh, but, but the problem is, as you know, because you've got the same problem and you guys are doing a great job of reaching people, the problem is finding the people who aren't taking the time to find somebody like mm -hmm. you. See, they're going to find me. If they don't find me, they're going to find you. They're going to find somebody who can help them. But what do we do for the people who don't want this to be part of their life? They hate talking about money, which is why... I developed a university course that's built for non-finance majors so that English teachers can learn about the right thing to do and, and, and other teachers um, without having to feel like they're, uh, they're focusing their life just on money. Got it. Got it. So point five, we have load funds or no load funds. We are all in the camp of no load funds. So that goes into point, point six. Now we have high expenses versus low expenses, not to be confused with load versus no load, correct? Correct, because these are the expenses to operate the mutual fund. It is interesting that the funds that, uh, that charge a load also have high expenses. I mean, they get you twice. They get you twice for about a half a percent each a year for the rest of your life. And, 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 and that's not just a, 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 a prediction. That's based on all of the academic research that has been done that you're going to pay that price. Now, how can it be that somebody would be willing to pay a load and to pay a higher expense ratio because there's somebody managing the mutual fund who's a genius. <laughs> I mean, this, this person has a great track record over the last, let's say, 15 years like Bill Miller did at, at, uh, at, a, at, at the uh, uh, Lake Mason uh, Value Trust Fund. And he beat the S&P 500 for 15 years. And then after everybody discovered what a genius he was, he literally fell to the bottom 1% of all managers in his category. Why'd that happen? Because he picked good stuff for a number of years, and then it could be luck. We don't know. It could be a random event. And then he picked bad stuff that he thought was going to be good. And that's the price of active management. Mm -hmm. you, get a, you, you get a higher income for being an active manager than you do for somebody who runs, for example, like an index fund, which is a, you know, a very, very low expenses. Mm -hmm. Now, is there any way for people out there that want to check the expenses and let's say they're in, they've been invested in a mutual fund for the last five years, they've never really looked into it. They want to know what the load fee was and what the ongoing expenses are. Cause I know that the expenses can kind of be, you know, gray line items that aren't really clear and transparent. Do you know any tools or resources for someone to go and do a quick check? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's amazing what morningstar.com offers you and I'm, and, and you guys, I'm, I'm going to try to do a, uh, a, probably a half an hour piece on how to, 
how to use Morningstar, you should do it. You should walk people through it. You have the ability to do that kind of thing, and I'm a technology idiot, <laughs> so uh, I would really think that if you could just take the time to show people how to use Morningstar, you can look not only at their expenses, you can look at their turnover. How much trading do they do inside? You can look at their long-term track record, and Morningstar will even tell you where they stand. Are they in the top 10%, the top 20%? Are they in the bottom 10%? There are so many ways that you can understand how your fund is being managed. How many companies are in the fund? What's the average size of the company? It goes on and on, and it is so easy to use. And, that, and all the information on that sh should be completely factual, correct? Yes. Okay. Sometimes I feel like, because like, I, um, I, sometimes I feel like when I've had brokers in the past, the information they've been giving me is just almost like a play on words. Like it's not necessarily a lie or a fib, but it's presented in a way oh. that is, is very easy to manipulate the numbers. Right. And I just never know. Yeah, well, let me give you one. Yeah. Let me give you one. I'm sure you had, Oh, they have a five star rating. You know, that's the best rating mm -hmm. that Morningstar gives for a mutual fund. That is all based on relatively short term performance. Morningstar even admits that it does not have any predictive value. But the salespeople, if you tell somebody that you're uh, one of the uh, five-star fund, you think, oh, well, who wouldn't want to be in a five-star mm -hmm. fund? Yeah, I, I, but, you know the, the movie The Big Short? I'm not sure if it was Morningstar, but one of those big rating companies, that was a huge part of the movie was that they were basically getting bribed to give them a, either a triple A rating or a, a five-star. I forget yeah, what it was. Yeah, that was Standard and Poor's and Moody's, uh, I think. Ah, gotcha. Uh, no, that, by the way, that... Everything else I talked about about Morningstar mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the stars. I do not believe in the stars, mm -hmm. but they do give you, because that's a whole set of numbers mm -hmm. that are very questionable. But the returns, the expenses, the turnover, the average size company, how much in large, how much in small, how much in value, how much in growth, all of these things are important. Here's the beauty. There are people like me and others who go through all of that information, and then we, we recommend portfolios you can do on your own at Vanguard, at Fidelity, at T. Rowe Price, at Schwab, at TD Ameritrade. We've done the homework, and the good news is that the stuff that I recommend, there's no, there's no cost. There's no commission to get in those things. Uh, there's no commission to get out, and I don't make a penny. And we're definitely going to reference this stuff in the show notes and give uh, some ideas of these these asset allocation models for all the listeners after the show. Uh, so, Paul, that goes into number seven. We have, well, let's see, five left. So number seven, one I'm particularly interested in, high taxes versus low taxes versus no taxes. Tell us how to get no taxes. Well, of course, you get no taxes by being in a Roth IRA mm -hmm. or a Roth 401k. Mm -hmm. It was a slam dunk. I didn't have that available to me when I was mm -hmm. your age. It's amazing what that does in terms of, of being able to make help you make more over your lifetime. And unless they change the taxes, it's, it's, it's even advantageous in terms of what we're able to do for our heirs. So, uh, yes, no taxes is actually possible. Or low taxes, which would be a traditional IRA or a traditional 401K. But believe it or not, 
even in the mutual fund itself, if you're investing outside of the IRA or the 401k, Morningstar does this too. They show you the after-tax returns. And there are some funds that produce very good returns until, because they're actively traded, until you look at the, what's left over after taxes. And it's not what we make that counts, it's what we keep. Mm. So if you could explain that aspect a little bit more, because I'm, whenever I think of tax planning for stocks, bonds, any type of uh, portfolio investments, I always think more of, I guess the only two parts that I think of are, is it generating income or uh, yield and income, or is it a gross stock where the taxes would be treated as long-term capital versus ordinary income. Ah, okay, we're talking about mutual funds. You could have a manager who's all invested in, in, in growth companies, but they trade them actively so that a lot of the, of the distributions are short-term capital gains. It's one of the beauties of an index fund. You don't, you don't get that, any of that short-term trading. And they actually show at Morningstar how, how much they trade. A lot of funds turn the portfolio over once a year, 100% turnover. Mm. Other funds have 5% turnover. And the turnover would be how active they're actually trading the stocks within it? Yes, yes, exactly. And of course, they're going to say, well, it's because uh, we're trying to do the best we can for our shareholders and capture those profits before they're given back. Well, that assumes they know how to do that over the long term, there's no evidence they do know how to do that. But to the extent, in the meantime, they're taking short-term gains and you're in a taxable environment, it's costing you part of your return, which other funds don't do and make just as much basic, that, that nominal return before you even get into the tax-adjusted return. So, gee, by the time you add taxes and expenses and loads, and remember talking about making an extra half a percent and how meaningful that is to your financial future? What if you could find one and a half percent? What would that do for you? Big multiplier, I'd say. Yeah. All right, so we got number, that's tax, that was number seven, high taxes versus low taxes versus no taxes. Now we're in number eight, actively versus passively managed index funds. Yeah, well, of course, the actively managed funds I've been talking about trading in and out, easy to spot by using Morningstar, index funds or passively managed funds, they don't do that. They simply own all of the companies, basically, in that particular asset class. So if I want small cap value companies, which I happen to think are great for young people, I can buy an index fund that has a thousand of those companies. I can buy an index fund that has more than a thousand of those companies. And what I get, I get access to that asset class. And according to academic studies, 90 to 99% of the return that you get in the long term has to do with the asset class, not individual companies, the asset class. So you'd understand that immediately if I said stocks versus bonds, mm -hmm. that there's a huge difference long term. But what about if I talked about growth versus value or small cap, small companies versus large mm -hmm. companies or 
real estate investment trust, a wonderful long-term asset class that should only be held inside of an IRA or 401k. I mean, there are all these different asset classes, and those asset classes look different as a class in terms of risk, in terms of return, in terms of tax efficiency. Mm -hmm. And so what we want to focus on is the least expensive way to access asset classes. That's called index funds, low expenses, low turnover, broad diversification, all, in fact, there's an article I wrote, 30 Reasons I Love Index Funds. And there are really 30 reasons why index funds passively managed are better than active. Awesome, awesome, good drill down. All right, so we go into number nine, total market fund versus total market plus adding value and small cap. Yeah, well, see, here, here's what a lot of people are doing right now. They're putting their money intelligently into target date funds, or they're going directly into total market indexes. You can get them at Fidelity. You can get them at Vanguard. You can get them through ETFs. Those indexes are what we call cap-weighted, which means that the size of the companies in those indexes have an impact on how much of the index is made up of large companies and how much is small companies. So the Microsofts and the Googles and all of these big apples, they are a very major part of that index. You get very little exposure to value, those companies that are out of favor. You get very, very little exposure to small cap. So... For the long term, and I've written articles about about putting those major asset classes together, not just the total market, and balancing those asset classes evenly between big, small value growth, over the long term, small cap value, whether large or small value, they make a ton more money than those very, very large companies like Microsoft and Google and Apple. Now, it seems strange because we would think that the better the companies, the higher the return. No, the worse the companies, <laughs> the higher the return as a group. And so that's where Warren Buffett became a hero because he invested in value companies, mostly large value companies, but small value companies do better. So my advice to young people is to have a lot of money in large cap, total market is fine, but maybe 25%, maybe 40% of your portfolio should be in small cap value. And again, I have an article about what that does to your portfolio by combining the two. It means you have to do a little tiny bit more work. You have to take a little more risk, yes, But the payoff, looking backwards, I can't tell you about the future, Sam. (laughs) The payoff has been absolutely huge. Awesome. So that's number nine. We have number 10. You select funds or use target date funds. Yes, target date funds are are fun. They are amazing. They are amazing because they represent what most people would really like to do. And they may not be listening to your podcast or mine, but they'd like to be able to know that they could put money into a mutual fund 
They may not even know what an e exchange-traded fund is, but a mutual fund, probably through their 401k, that would understand that they're 25 years old and they want to retire in 40 years. So they want to invest in a mutual fund that will in manage the money for them the way that they should have it managed if they could just find somebody who would do it for them. So when they're 25, they, they would be probably almost all or all in equities. And then as they're 45, maybe they're 30% in income or 20% in bonds. Uh, when they're 65, they're going to have more in bonds because they need to be more conservative. At 73, I'm 50-50 stocks and bonds. So the target date fund does that for you. That's what pension funds did for their employees. Corporations through pension funds did for their employees. They knew how old their employees were. They knew when they needed to start getting money paid out. They knew it was right to take risk when they were young. They knew it was right to take less risk when they got older. They managed them for them. And here's the thing that's so amazing. These target date funds are now available is as index funds, basically, with no loads to get in, no loads to get out, and, and, and super, super low expenses with low turnover. All those things we think would be in the best interest. There's only one real challenge. Those target date funds are way overweighted to large companies. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I advocate for young people. They take, whether it's 10% or 25 or 40, I want them to add some small cap value to that portfolio. You can do that right through Vanguard. You don't have to go out and find something out there in the universe. It's right there to buy on a no-load basis, probably through the same 401k plan that you're, that you're, that you're in. So I love target date funds. But I hate them for people who are willing to take a little time, make a little effort to add some asset classes that those target date funds don't include. Great advice. So that was actually number 11. Use 100% target yep. date funds yep. or add uh, small cap value. So you're advocating adding small yep. cap value, especially for people that are a little bit younger, have a little bit more time or, and or are willing to take on a little bit more risk. And you mentioned that you can buy yep. that. Did you say you can buy some type of target date fund through actually Vanguard or, or you'd have to kind of create it yourself? Yeah. Vanguard, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, they are the investment of the future mm -hmm. for people who don't know what they're doing or don't want to know. They don't want to even think about mm -hmm. it. They want somebody else to do all of that thinking. And remember, when I go to a stockbroker, I've got one guy telling me what I should do with my money. And I have no idea how smart that person is or isn't. But anyway, when I'm in a target date fund, I've got somebody managing that portfolio that is doing it for maybe five to ten billion dollars worth of money for others. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am so special that I am being treated the way that, in essence, some of the smartest people in the in in the industry are being treated. And I'm not sure I get that from a stockbroker. So how would they actually do that? Like, let's say you're, you're 20 and you buy into a, t a target date fund. They would put you in the same, they would put your, 
they would put your money in the same class as other 20 year olds or something because it, yes. and they would have to manage. Okay. Yes. Got it. Got it. But, 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 but maybe because I mean, uh, at what age, when you were 25, mm-hmm. at what age did you think you would retire? Gosh, I don't know if I even thought about that question, but let's just say, let's just okay. say 70. Okay. See, see, you might take uh, a portfolio at 25. That's a, a, 2065 somebody's retiring in 2065 somebody else might be wanting to put their money into a portfolio at that's they're planning on retiring in 2050 Mm -hmm. so they would they would view you as how you see yourself and you you've made that evaluation that Mm self-evaluation of when you want to retire so you they they have them every five years you can pick a different uh, retirement. Got date. it. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's something we've never talked about on the show before. So it's great to, to elaborate a little bit. Appreciate all that. So that takes us into our last one, Paul. Number 12, trust Wall Street, Main Street, or University Street? Okay. I said that saving versus spending, well, I mean, that's the, that's the big one. But really, the next huge decision you make is who do you trust to give you investment advice? And the choices are basically Wall Street, uh, Main Street is your next door neighbor or somebody, a friend mm-hmm. of yours, or what I call University Street, the academic community. I don't trust Wall Street. I don't mean that I don't trust that stockbroker to care about me, because what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a combination of two things, competence and ethics. Mm-hmm. I want somebody who's competent. I want somebody who's ethical. Now, I might get that maybe from the broker. But I also want the firm they work for to be competent and ethical. And I want the firm they work for to offer products that are competent and ethical. Now you would think that, well, that must be everybody because, because how, you know, how could anybody not be competent? There's so much information available to understand the investing process. But what about the ethics? Well, we already know that when given a chance, some very large banks and brokerage firms do things that are unethical. And if you don't believe that, put the name of a major brokerage company in your search engine and put the word fraud or SEC fines and then do your search and see how many stories <laughs> that these people really demonstrate that they are not ethical. Oh, it's depressing. It is depressing. But the good news is is there are areas where people can get good mm-hmm. advice. The best source of advice I have found comes out of the academic community. If somebody wants to go dig and read the work of Dr. Fama or Dr. French, these people have spent a lifetime plowing through all the numbers with helps of, help from uh, hundreds of students, I'm sure, getting the mm-hmm. numbers. And they have shown the impact of value and small cap. They have shown the impact of expenses, operating expenses, and a load. They have broken this down not into a story, but into numbers that give us something we can evaluate without having to either feel good or feel bad, just knowing. And I don't know anything better than looking at the numbers. And that's the reason everything I do with my own money, every penny I have invested is managed completely mechanically 
I do not want emotions to be any part of that decision because I, like you, love a story. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, Sam, but I've been conned because I love a story. Fortunately, the cons were not, the cost was low, but I still got conned. (laughs) You still made it to retirement, luckily. (laughs) I did. So when you say mechanically, Paul, you mean, are you using some type of like robo-advisory or just you have it in Vanguard or? Well, I have an advisor that works for me and my wife and my family. And, uh, I, and I know exactly what he's doing because he works for the company that I sold back in oh, 2012. <laughs> and I don't own any part of that company, mm-hmm. but I know how they believe. Mm-hmm. It's mechanical because all of the money is either purely in index funds. I call that mechanical mm-hmm. investing. Mm-hmm. Half of it's there and half of it is in, uh, and, and I'm not advocating this, but this is the truth. Half of it is using mechanical market timing systems. And someday, if you want to talk about market timing on your, uh, on your podcast, I'd love to be part of that because it's a fascinating arena. Uh, it is different than thinking you're going to pick a good stock. Mm-hmm. It's even different than thinking you're going to make more money because you bounce in and out of the market. And, I, and it's, it's, it's very misunderstood, but I'm happy to talk about it sometime when we have the time. Awesome. And so, you, so the money that you have invested personally right now, is it being, how do I say this? Is it being actively traded uh, through these mechanisms or is it, is it mostly passive? Yeah. The half that is market timing. Yes, the half that is market timing is actively mm-hmm. traded partly in stock funds, partly in bond funds and ETFs. But the other half is totally buy and hold. Very cool. Awesome. Well, yeah, we'd love to do a follow-up episode at some point with that. That's uh, another very interesting topic that we've tried to stay away from just because we don't want to try to time the market using our own emotions yeah. and our own, you know, our own um, opinions. It's I agree. We've all gotten 100%. Burned, so. I agree. Yep. So we have a few listener questions just to wrap up the episode. It's been uh, tremendous so far. We'd like to just get a couple of these answered. You up for, say, three quick questions? Oh, of course. Let's go for it. Okay. So we have one from Paul. I'll just read it uh, here. It says, in his 101 book, he recommends putting one half of your stocks into international stocks. Does Paul adhere to this recommendation? John Bogle argues that international stocks aren't necessary because most U.S. companies are now global companies. So owning stocks in them or a stock in them will be like owning international stock. Wanted to get Paul's opinion and argument. Well, I'll make it as quick as I can. Mm -hmm. I used to have John Bogle on my radio show once a year. Mm for about 10 years. He was absolutely wonderful. He didn't think it was necessary to have small cap for value specifically in your portfolio. He believed the S&P 500 initially when we started interviewing him was all that you really needed. Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot of academic research about, as I've already said, about small and about value and about international. Now, and from my viewpoint, the 50% in international, the 50% I have in small cap, the 50% I have in value uh, is simply I want to have access to those asset classes. Now, I just mentioned three or four different 50% positions which are starting to sound like 200%, but I do have small cap growth in my portfolio along with small cap value. I do have large along with small. And the decision to be 50% in international uh, is that those are currency-driven, which means that 
There is currency diversification. Sometimes that helps. Sometimes that hurts. But what it does do is it slows down. The, it, it, it minimizes the volatility over the long term. It also gives you access to international small cap and international value and emerging markets, things that you are not going to get through the IBMs and the Microsofts and the other large growth companies in the U.S. So it's hard to do the 50%. Don't have to. In fact, I tell people, you don't have to be in any international if you don't want, but make sure your U.S. is broadly diversified, large, small value growth. But I think the smart investors who want to do everything they can to spread their risk and the academics say we should never have more than half of our money in any one country, I think it makes sense. You may give up a little bit in return, you may get a little bit in return, but you will have diversified yourself against a risk you didn't have to take. I like it. Thanks a lot for that. Number two question is, if someone was interested in using a financial advisor and paying their 1% to 1.5% fees, how would, you, uh, how would you say to vet them or advise to vet them? Well, I, 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 I just wrote an article about what you need to know about somebody you're going to trust your financial life to. Mm -hmm. And, of course, number one is they need to be a fiduciary. Absolutely, without question, they can only work for one master, and that's the client. Uh, the, the people in the brokerage business, they really have two masters. One is the client, and the other is the firm they work for. Mm -hmm. And so they're not held to the same requirements in terms of, of uh, doing the best thing for the client that the investment advisor who's a fiduciary is. Then, of course, you've got to find somebody who's going to take the size of account you are. Because my old firm, their minimum size account is $500 million. And so that obviously leaves a lot of people out. But the other side of that coin is each advisor in a firm that has that high of a minimum has a relatively few number of accounts to work for, maybe 100, 150, 200. If somebody will take a $25,000 account, the good news is you qualify. The bad news is they probably have, they probably have a thousand accounts. So, and, and of course, you know, robo advisors and uh, robo advisors are basically target date funds of sorts. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, I think some of them probably do a very, very good job and that's where you're going to have to start. I'm not going to spill the beans right now, but I'm working on a project right now that I think is go it's going to change the financial future of a lot of people who believe in what I'm preaching. And, uh, and I have to say preaching because the future is all based on faith. <laughs> there is no way of knowing what the future is going to give us. But, but there are products coming out right now in this industry that make it so easy to be a successful investor if you have the discipline to save. Yes. Okay. So that actually your last statement uh, before the discipline to save takes us into the last listener question, which is if we could go back, or, I'm sorry, if you could go back, Paul, uh, today to start over at age 30, middle income, uh, middle of the road income, middle of the road savings, what would your asset allocation model look like based on what you think the future will look like? Well, uh, my asset allocation would be, I would still be 100% in equities mm -hmm. at 30. 
in that book, that free book, ebook that I that you mentioned, mm-hmm. the 101 Investment Decisions Guaranteed to Change Your Financial Future. At the end of the book, I talk about ten different asset allocation strategies, how to change from all stocks to maybe eventually all bonds over your lifetime. And my hope is it, somewhere in those ten is a strategy that is comfortable for you. My idea is, again, to find a mechanical answer to an emotional challenge, and that is how do we transition out of uh, of equities. Now, I'm just coming out with a new article this week uh, about small cap and large cap value. It'll knock your socks off, I think, in terms of looking at the long-term return and the long-term risk of that combination. I might have a 30-year-old still with all of their equities in value. Might not all be small, but a combination of U.S. Uh, small and U.S. large. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating study. I, I hope that uh, that you'll make that available to your listeners. Yeah, please, as you know, as you create more content, more media, some of these products that you're talking about coming out with, please uh, keep us posted on all that stuff. We'd love to share with our audience. I know everyone would like to take a look at that stuff as it comes out. Um, this episode has been awesome. There's so much stuff to uh, to take in, digest. We're looking really forward to recapping it all, summarizing it, and uh, and again, sending it out to the listeners so with that, I think we've wrapped up the episode, Paul. This has been a tremendous amount of fun. I appreciate you taking the time, uh, early, early Pacific you, time. Sir. And um, hopefully we can do a recap at some point in the future. You know, my pleasure anytime. All I want to do is help people do better with their money. And I see that that's your goal as well. Keep up the great work you're doing. I really admire your dedication. You're a good man, Paul. We appreciate having on again and uh, enjoy your season out in California. All right. (laughs) All right, guys. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Man, that was such a good episode. I I really love that uh, Paul's authenticity. He just generally sounds like a nice, you know, older guy who just wants to be able to pass down all his knowledge, all his wisdom and help other people retire financially free. Yeah, man. I listened to the raw episode with my some of my family and my friends in a car on the drive uh, drive down south, and it was awesome. I mean that that covers so much, and it covers it in enough detail that it it makes it practical and, and useful. Uh, and so many of the things that we've talked about on previous episodes, we get to touch on those again in this episode. It's a great refresher. It's a great recap of things that we've touched on lightly before, and we know makes sense. And now we're getting. Uh, reconfirmation from somebody that's been in the business for 50 plus years and has weathered tons of storms and still come out ahead. So I'm I'm super pumped about that episode. Well, what I really liked is I was listening to the call even before you guys started hit me, you know, started you guys hit record and he was saying how important it is what we're doing. And, you know, even though I like, honestly, I I think, you know, we do this podcast because it's fun and we want to learn for ourselves. But sometimes we kind of forget how important it is to be able to share this knowledge with other people. Yeah. And we're, I mean, we're doing this podcast. We, we initially started this podcast for our own benefit, right? Like <laughs> we're talking about all these new investment ideas and, and new ways of thinking and new platforms to invest through. And we realized like we're investing a lot of, you know, we have a lot on the table and we're investing with limited knowledge. So let's get this going and, and see where we end up. And, you know, there's just, there's just so many people out there. I was just researching stats on the millennials 
you know, 75 million millennials just in the USA alone. Uh, you know, that, that number is close to a billion worldwide. So there's just a lot of people that need help investing and, and people like Paul Merriman coming on the show and sharing his wealth of, of experience and knowledge are really going a long way to help us figure out better, smarter ways to invest. Yeah. And what I really like is he is a living example of someone who, you know, educated himself Mm-hmm. Uh, had the discipline to save, had to, you know, invested wisely and is happily retired now. You know, not retired yeah. in a way where, you know, like the Thai expats who are on a super tight budget or always worried about <laughs> money, uh, but, you know, really happily retired and with financially free. Yeah, absolutely. And John, you've been really pumped to hear that Paul suggests that anyone really in our age group that has long-term money should basically be 100% weighted in equities like my man Johnny FD that is fully in VTI in Vanguard. Yeah, so actually I, I took a bunch of notes from everything he said. Uh, the first thing that, that was so important is just having the discipline to save is mm-hmm. primary because if you have nothing left over to invest, then it, all this knowledge is useless. You know, um, you know, him bringing up that quote where they're talking about you know instead of spending money that you have. We're saving money you have left over. You want to and you want to invest first, and then spend that money after all of that. And I, I think right. that is so important. That's that's also another reason why I'm happy to live in a cheaper place like in Thailand and be able to save a lot more than living mm-hmm. here in LA uh, and ball out. Yeah, I totally agree. And I really, you know, that's a good point. And it's something that is it's so basic and and so elementary in a sense that a lot of people overlook it. But if you really look at what you're saving and what you're spending each month. And just add up how much you're spending on coffee each month. It's it's ridiculous for some people. They're spending $500, $1,000 every month on Starbucks coffees. I mean, take a look at some of these basic things that you're spending on and make a decision to save first. And one of the big takeaways for me was just perspective that he had. And it was a quote that he had during the episode, which was, the future never looked good. And I think that's something that we can always take a look at today because no matter where you are in the world today, there's issues, there's controversy, there's turmoil. You look at what's going on in the USA right now with the, the political division and the division that's happening in the USA. And you think the future looks maybe pessimistic. I mean, mediocre at best, probably not oper- uh, uh, probably not optimistic. But, you know, he goes back, he, you know, he's been through, he's lived through wars, recessions, depressions, all types of political, geopolitical events. And he says, the future has never looked good, and yet we still have had a market that has reaped 10% average returns through equities. So it's something to definitely consider. We can't predict the future. We can only study from the past. But taking that knowledge and that experience that he's had over the course of 50-plus years of investing and advising, and we can try to make good decisions for the future. Yeah, I thought that was really cool because you know we always think like, oh, if only we you know we lived at – this time of the year or this time of the or in our lifetime, it would have been better. But it's nice kind of seeing that he's been through all that. He says, you know what? You got to invest now. There's like, it's, 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 you know, it's going to have its ups and, ups and downs, but just start investing now. So, um, one thing that I really think is important that I, I feel really bad for, for people is the fact that most people just kind of default to whatever mutual funds or whatever funds their retirement savings account, you know, they're a teacher or they're, they have a corporate job, whatever they kind of give them. Or if they have an option, all the options are bad. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important for everyone listening to this. Or if you, unfortunately, I would, you know, it's it's hard to try to get someone who doesn't want to deal with it to even look at it. I think everyone listening to this 
podcast is excited about the future. They they want to think 20, 30 years in the future mm-hmm. because they want to be able to retire wealthy. But there's a lot of people that they're like, you know what? I, ha- I don't even have the energy to, you know, to see how much money uh, I spent this month. I don't want to think about 20, 30 years in the future. And those are the same people that need it the most because they're probably saving into an account that it has high fees that's going to cost them what up to $2 million in their lifetime. Yeah. 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 Great. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. I mean, when, look what he mentioned about the, the school teachers that have to invest through a 401k and they have no options. I mean, that's, that's almost criminal, you know, from where I'm standing, where I'm looking, that's almost criminal. And, you know, hopefully they get a little bit more guidance and they get, they get better input and there's more transparency in all these things, hopefully through some of the things that we're doing and bringing to light and work of, of Paul Merriman and, and other people in, in the field to, to help people, especially everyday people, you know, school teachers, you know, there are educators, there, there are civil servants and they're getting taken by, by essentially schemes. Um, it's just, you know, I don't, I don't think it's fair. So hopefully we can bring some light to that stuff and everybody out there listening. If you liked this episode with Paul Merriman we, he's got a video that's two and a half hours long. We're going to include it in the show notes. It's on YouTube. It talks about all this stuff. It's a video uh, a video recording so you can actually see Paul, see what he's all about. He's got a lot of energy and, um, and obviously a lot of intellect. So take a look at that. We'll also leave show notes for his book, The 101 Financial Decisions That Are Guaranteed to Change Your Financial Future and lots of other of his material. So I'm curious, after kind of listening to his episode, is there anything that you're going to kind of think about differently or do differently? You know, I these type of episodes, I think they more just drill down the core principles that we've been learning about. So when I hear Paul mention all these things, I go back, I take a look at all of my my own internal planning notes. Um, you know, one thing that, of course, is continuously drilled down through each and every episode is low fees, low fees, low fees. Uh, and that is that's been one of the I think the core principles of so many of the episodes and so much of the content that we've been able to gather through all these great guests. But I would say the the main thing for me will be to take another look at my Vanguard account and potentially put more money into value stocks because I don't have any of that in my current portfolio. Um, but I, he made a very compelling point and I also drilled down back on what Buffett's core strategy has been pretty much his entire life of investing, which is in value and in, uh, investing in value stocks. So that would be my, my big uh, practical uh, changes to my portfolio. What about you, Johnny? So the two things that I'm going to do is one is I'm going to pull up the the data from my old 401k that I had with Honeywell and see exactly what the heck they're investing in and what the fees are. Because you know, that was the same way as, as everyone else. You know, I signed up for my company's 401k without thinking about it too much. You know, I may have asked a, a friend, um, a financial advisor friend of my sister's, you mm-hmm. know, which stocks I should choose. But maybe he was just choosing the worst of the <laughs> the bunch and mm-hmm. maybe they all suck. Uh, I haven't looked into it, you know, until now because it was, you know, relatively not that, you know, that big of a, you know, um, amount of money. So, and those were kind of just my choices. But, now I'm going to actually sit down and spend, you know, the 30 minutes or the hour to go through it to find out what exactly the fees are, what's, what it's yeah. um, invested in. And if it sucks, I'm going to move it. Yeah. 
Makes sense. Yeah. So I will post an update uh, on that in the Boss Lounge on our Facebook group. So if you guys aren't part of that yet, if you go to investlikeaboss.com, click on bonus, uh, and you sign up for the email list, you'll get an invite to the Boss Lounge. And actually, the other thing I'm going to do too is exactly the same as you. I'm going to start investing more into small cap, uh, especially value funds with Vanguard. Uh, I actually have been already um, the last couple of months. So instead of buying just VTI, I've also been buying their their small cap funds. Uh, I don't remember mm-hmm. exactly what the 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 um, the ticker symbol sure. was, yeah. but it's Vanguard small cap funds. All right. So thanks again to, to Paul Merriman for coming on the show. It was an awesome episode. Really appreciate your time, and uh, I know all of our listeners will really enjoy this episode or or have already enjoyed this episode. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so if you guys want to check out his site, it's paulmerriam.com. We'll have links to it in the show notes of this episode, and. Uh, big thanks to everyone who's taken the time to leave five-star reviews of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. This helps us spread the word, get, you know, it gets more people listening and it gives us more credibility so we can get guys like Paul, uh, to come on the show happily and, and share all this wisdom. So if you haven't done it yet, please, please, please log on to iTunes uh, into the actual app leave a review or if you don't have it you know you can leave, leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast right on and guys also one other thing on facebook make sure you join the boss lounge it's a private group not the fan page that's where we do all the discussions you can like our fan page too that's typically where we send updates of new episodes being out but the boss lounge the private group is actually where we discuss a lot more of the in-depth investing details and also invite our guests to get in there and interact with all of our listeners. Definitely. So uh, this month, well, actually this week, we got a couple new five-star reviews. So big mm-hmm. thank you to Pavel GRG. He says, thank you, five stars. I've recently began to show interest in growing my money and escaping the rat race. I found this podcast completely through serendipity and I've learned so much from these guys. I never had anyone giving me any sort of financial advice and these two guys have changed my whole outlook on life. What I can achieve if I set my mind to it. Johnny, FD, and Sam Marks, I'm following in your footsteps. I'm 30 and not have don't have that much to show for it in my bank account in three years. I expect to be right where you guys are financially. It's a challenge I've set for myself. See you guys then. Whoop, whoop. All right. And Macmillan55 from the USA, five-star review. He says, already taking action from the show. Set up my Vanguard account and purchase some index funds. I'm loving the content on the website, investing and building income from different website models. But what to do with my profits? Johnny FD is an investing guinea pig and will try it all. Very cool to follow him on his journey, becoming a millionaire right in front of us and finding out what works. This is a must listen if you care about your financial future. Macmillan, 55, thanks for that review. And thank you, everyone else, for all of your reviews. Like Johnny said, it helps us get more guests on and bring you more and more valuable content. All right, guys. So I'm about to hop on a plane back to Thailand. I'll see you guys next week. Sam, peace out. And everyone listening, have a good one. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.